0: Hello, and welcome to SkyNet Today's Last Week in AI podcast, where you can hear AI researchers chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we'll provide summaries and discussion of some of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI newsletter at lastweekin.ai for articles we did and did not cover in this episode. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Sharon Joe.
1: And I'm your other host, not a doctor, Andrey Kurenkov. Uh, this week, we'll be covering a usual range of stuff. We'll be talking about how ML tools can predict post-op complication and surgery duration, how they can eliminate accents in phone calls, some new research on AI-designed cameras with selective recording of objects, and AI for dating archeological remains. We'll have a couple of stories on deep fakes and generative image synthesis, and we'll finish off talking about stable diffusion and just how crazy good text to image models are generally these days. So it should be a lot of
0: fun. Woo. All right. Let's dive straight in. So in applications and business, our first article is machine learning tools predict post-op complications surgery duration. So um, research here suggests that actually approximately 7 to 15% of major surgery patients are actually expected to experience a major complication. Um, and a third of hospital's expenses are, are actually spent on care to prevent these complications, which can be life-threatening. Um, so researchers and clinicians came together and uh, gathered and used information to predict surgical complications using machine learning. Um, but actually, in, in general, this is actually a very difficult task uh, because... Um, You know, there isn't actually that much data. There's a lot of missing data on perioperative, uh, the perioperative period, which is just the time before and after a patient is in surgery. And this information can include that related to demographics, history of comorbidities, lab tests, medications, clinical notes, and physiological signals, along with hundreds of other pieces of data there. So to address this challenge, um, this research team of clinicians and research and machine learning researchers actually began to to develop a deep learning approach using a uh, variational autoencoder, a VAE, um, which they call a clinical VAE. Um, And this they use to um, reduce the dimensionality of the data while still capturing relationships um, among the original perioperative variables. And then they use this um, to be able to uh, uh, predict whether patients would develop post-operative delirium as a specific thing and also one for predicting the duration of the surgery. Um, and they looked at, you know, 562 clinical variables, and they were able to quote compress that into 10 variables using this VAE, which looks fairly standard. Um, and also, they do make it into an acronym of called CVAE, which to me looks like conditional VAE. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this is using not, not a new approach at all, but like applying it to interesting data set here um, that does very much affect, very much affect surgery.
1: Definitely. Yeah. And it's interesting, this article also notes that this is really another study that's adding to a growing body of research, showing the potentials of AI to enhance this notion of predictive analytics in medicine. So last year, researchers at Thomas Jefferson University developed a model for predicting complications such as kidney failure and stroke. There's also work from University of Florida that was also about predicting complications. I think just a couple of weeks ago, we talked about predicting uh, sepsis or or kind of uh, perhaps diagnosing it. So it seems like this is a a pretty kind of broad uh, application area within medicine, just kind of predicting how things will go and what sort of complications might arise. And um, yeah, seeing all these papers come out of it and show that this is viable is definitely exciting. It seems like, you know, maybe it won't take too long for this sort of stuff to be integrated.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with that. And um, I think it still might take some time to deploy something like this, but I'm glad that there are so many different angles and nooks and crannies that we can use machine learning for and um, that, you know, there's just data everywhere now um, and using this data and figuring out how to use this data is, is super important.
1: Definitely. Yeah, it's it's fun how it seems like we talk about medicine very often in this education yes. section. So. That's always fun. But on to something uh, not related to medicine or saving lives. We have the story, Sanas, the buzzy Silicon Valley startup that wants to make the world sound wider. So this is about the startup Sanas that aims to... Uh, currently make call center workers essentially sound white and American, no matter of the country they're from. So if you have a call center worker in India who has an Indian accent when speaking English, this is using an AI filter to make them sound sort of the standard accent of American English, uh, however that can be defined as and it is doing quite well so since uh, launching in august 2021 they already got 32 million uh, in series a uh, funding and they already say that at least seven outsourcing firms have already deployed their products in their call centers and eventually they want to uh, expand beyond that to even consumer video and audio calls and maybe film a tv Just a lot of applications where you can modify an accent to make it different. Uh, which of course, um, the appeal is business-wise is there, pretty easy to see, but there's also been some criticism of kind of forcing people to sound white. So, uh, what do you think Sharon?
0: And the title of the article was, you know, pretty spicy uh, itself, um, but indeed, uh, they do spend quite a bit of time on the critique. So people, you know, they say on the surface, this tool reflects communication difficulty, um, basically people not being able to understand other people's speech, but really it's, quote, coded for a whole bunch of other issues about how accent triggers racism and ethnocentrism. And that was by Professor of Sociology at the Washington University in St. Louis, um, who's done extensive research on call center workers. Um, and, you know, a service like Sanus, um, they argue, likely would not help call center workers, even with a flawless synthetic accent. It doesn't cover up that outsourcing exists or that the call is probably not in the United States I mean, it just doesn't solve the real problems of outsourcing. So even if the workers' voices aren't triggering racist harassment, they're still subject to a culture of harsh surveillance and little autonomy. So what, what they're really getting at is, you know, the, the fact that while this does cover up the accents and, you know, tries to get at uh, some of the problems with outsourcing, it's, it's really just trying to put a bandaid on the problem as opposed to really solving the root of the problem um, is it, the main critique here.
1: And that's a totally reasonable critique. I think, like, obviously, as a business, it will sell this, like, you know, happy story of improving the experience of call center workers as the main motivation. But uh, ultimately, this is a business that, uh, you know, will try to make money by catering to the companies that want to maximize profit. Uh, so it's true that we are not trying to solve these underlying issues. But at the same time, I can't help but feel that even if they aren't trying to solve those problems, they can alleviate them by, for instance, making it so the workers themselves don't have to learn to whitewash their accent and adapt to this American accent, which currently a lot of them do. So even as a band-aid, I feel it's better to have a band-aid than nothing at all, personally.
0: Yeah, I also don't expect a startup to be able to solve everything, especially the giant root cause of it immediately and initially. That's that's quite a large ask. Um, So I'm excited to see where this goes. Uh, And, you know, I I don't know exactly where the startup is trying to take things um, in terms of their vision. So uh, we'll see.
1: Yeah. And I also say that uh, this was founded by three former Stanford students. Uh, Maxime Serbiakov, Sean Zhang, and uh, Andre Perez-Sodero. And those names are all clearly uh, by immigrants. And I do feel like, you know, if you spend time around immigrants or have yourself been an immigrant, uh, being understood is a real challenge when you're trying to speak with a heavy accent. And... Even if you have interactive immigrants, you can you can know that sometimes it is difficult to understand, and you're doing your best, but it may may be an issue. So I do think there is a space for this to be also useful for immigrants and language learners and people who uh, have difficulty communicating, and that you know making that experience easier.
0: Yeah, yeah. And Sean was actually in our lab. No. Under, working with me actually under me so yeah oh wow um and on to research and advancements um ai design camera only records objects of interest while being blind to others so uh, this is based on the ucla piece of research uh, titled to image or not to image class specific diffractive cameras with all optical erasure of undesired objects so what does that mean this new research paper which was published in e um, basically showed that you can do something else to preserve privacy when you're imaging um, by basically building a fundamentally new type of camera. Uh, and that that camera is, um, you know, modified by AI, where AI is uh, making small uh, modifications to the hardware while it's taking a picture to then mask um, to then mask certain objects and not other objects. Um, so I thought this was a very cool piece of work because, you know, up until now imaging, you know, it's kind of like post-processing of, you know, based on what the camera sees, you know, we can then decide whether or not, you know, our data, you know, has something and then we show it privately or not. And there are all sorts of techniques there, but for many of them, you can still recover what the hidden things are, um, and you know, we don't want that. We want certain things to actually be hidden. Um, and in this case, we're able to do that. So it's able to, you know, let's say you only want to see, uh, in their case, they were looking at MNIST, which is a handwritten digits, and you only want to see the number two. So it'll only see the number two and every other number, it'll be masked out and you can't tell and you can't recover it because in the data it's just irrecoverable. <laughs> it's just like black, a black space there. So, uh, I thought this was a cool piece of work um, and they largely only um, tested it on a couple small data sets, but I think the direction is promising. They tested it on MNIST, the handwritten digits, and also uh, fashion MNIST, which is looking at, you know, fashion um, objects. The trousers.
1: Yeah, I agree. I am, I was, uh, you know, pretty blown away by this, by this whole idea of, not creating software, but using software to design actual hardware, actual lenses that make it. So the camera basically cannot capture certain shapes and the obvious uh, use case here is for privacy reasons to kind of blur faces now instead of blurring faces manually using software or post-process like you said, this can be, from the first place in recording, impossible. And you can imagine you can make whole new cameras or probably you could just make lenses also that are privacy preserving. Uh, yeah, so really, really cool research and hopefully we'll see follow-ups to this that go beyond Amnesty and, and towards like uh, faces and things like that as well.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to see where this goes. because I do think if a camera is made like this, it it could it could it could mean a very big difference in how we think about privacy, vision and, and surveillance.
1: Definitely. Yeah. And our second research article is AI based methods for dating archaeological remains. And this is about the paper. Temporal population structure, a genetic dating method for ancient Eurasian genomes from the past 10,000 years, which was published in Cell Reports, uh, Reports Methods. So, the whole idea here is that obviously you want to be able to date ancient humans. To be able to map migration and other patterns throughout world history, and then the standard dating method is radiocarbon dating, but uh, it's not always really reliable. Uh, so there's other problems uh, that could result in vague and contradictory really results with this method uh, in terms of how the quality of material is, for instance. So Vesperprint uses a new method that instead of using the ratio of isotopes in material, uses the DNA you gather from the sample. And then uh, it it turns out that using a machine learning method, you can predict the age of the sample from the DNA, which makes it this uh, really uh, completely different type of dating method. And they show that uh, you know in the range of ten thousand years ago, so they um really focus on this late Mesolithic period of ten thousand to eight thousand b c uh through to modern times and they use a dating uh training data set of uh, five thousand human remains and and show that this works so um another kind of application of research to um uh, application of AI to another scientific discipline, which is, uh, seems really cool.
0: This is a very cool scientific discipline to be applying it to, um, archeology essentially. Right. Uh, and be able to date it, uh, they have a pretty complex diagram of, uh, the different components of what they're doing, but it looks like they're using both supervised and unsupervised, uh, methods to, to, to train this model. Um, uh, but it, it does look like a fairly simple set of models.
1: Yeah, the models themselves are pretty standard. It's not even deep learning. So the complications here are really in how do you get the data? How do you filter it? How do you make the learning work? Which I think we've seen pretty often in in these sort of uh, interdisciplinary works where the method, the model is pretty standard, but there's a lot of details about the nature of the data and how it is Put together that is more field specific, uh, which is interesting.
0: And any kind of applied approach will see this as a challenge where data is really the big challenge and less so uh, about innovating on the model. Um, and versus for AI research in particular, you know, at least up until few, <laughs> a bit ago, it was, you know, there were just existing data sets that you could use, like ImageNet, where you wouldn't have to prepare your own. Um, but in reality, I think a lot of applied AI or AI used for products are, are largely um, based on well, what we understand in the data and how we how we work with that data that is real and dirty and messy.
1: Yeah, yeah. And um, it's interesting also to note, uh, I think it's cool that the paper analyzes existing publicly available data with all this post-processing and they published all their original code, uh, in this uh, website called data triad, which, uh, has, you know, this, uh, hosting of data. So seems like, um, you know, other researchers who might want to be able to date human remains from this period can go ahead and just get to code and the model and, and use it. Uh, so that's really cool.
0: And onto our policy and societal impact section. You just hired a deep fake, get ready for the rise of imposter employees. Uh, So companies have actually been complaining more and more to the FBI about uh, prospective employees using real-time deep fake video and deep fake audio for remote interviews, um, along with uh, PII personally identifiable information to land jobs at American companies. And so there's, you know, one thing that, um, these fake, you know, candidates are actually companies are doing is that the way they get PII, this personally identifiable information is that they post fake job postings and that enables them to get basically harvest job candidate information and get other people's resumes who are real. Um, and that's what they're doing. Um, and, it's uh, pretty intense because these candidates are sometimes and then on the candidate side, they're using um, various different app, apps to go from a photo to deep fake video. Um, and largely all of this is just for espionage into different company systems. Um, uh, it's for money. It's for unearned career advancement. Um, and so it, it's, it's kind of crazy how how this is now um, a huge you know, huge uh, co- part of the complaint uh, sent to the FBI, and it's really just a perfect job for spies, um, in particular spies for the North Korean government. Which, according to a statement by the FBI and the U.S. State and Treasury Departments, is that some imposter candidates actually work for the North Korean government um, because of U.S. sanctions. North Koreans are actually not able; they're not not eligible to to work at American companies. um, And American companies can be actually fined about $330,000 for each violation. So then the North Korean government thinks, okay, well, I'm going to go around this and actually lets people apply and work as imposters um, in exchange for taking actually most of their salaries. Um, And North Korean spies get jobs under false identities just to steal these secrets. Um, And, you know, some use their real identities but claim they were outside of North Korea. So pretty crazy. Um, Candidate fraud has nearly doubled, uh, according to uh, Glider AI's Future of Candidate Evaluation report uh, since the pandemic. And, you know, these uh, cyber attackers or hackers are just getting hired under stolen credentials just to gain unauthorized access to sensitive data into systems inside of companies. Um, And if someone has, you know, tech skills, IT skills to get some job, they can also uh, do so. And th- that could be very dangerous in a company as well.
1: Yeah. Wow. <laughs> this is pretty dramatic, especially the details about the North Korean uh, government, where they do have a lot of uh, hacking, targeting other countries, famously. And yeah, it's, it's really, it seems to be a big threat. Of course, social engineering is... Uh, in practice, one of the main ways to successfully hack, uh, you know, basically fool people instead of write some hack for code, and this does seem to make it easier. So it's really interesting how, you know, the concern used to be mostly misinformation and fake news and so on with deepfakes, but this particular example of using deepfakes to essentially do espionage hacking seems to be much more of a realistic present day threat that is playing out in practice. So, um, yeah, uh, I really wasn't kind of, um, aware that, you know, it seems like this is already kind of a big deal and is only going to become more commonplace, um, soon. Well, uh, we have another story on deep fakes right after this one. Called Deepfakes for All, Uncensored AI Art Model Prompts Ethics Questions. And there's another uh, AI story. Uh, there's another new story that's quite related called This AI Tool is Being Used to Make Freaky Machine Generated Porn. Um, which yeah that's what this is all about so we've talked about how stable diffusion has been released uh now a week ago it was fully released the model and uh it was also in beta where you could use it through a gui uh to recap stable diffusion is essentially something like dali 2 but instead of being closed behind an api They decided to pretty much open source the uh, trained model and the package to use it and other things like that. And that means that they don't have any filters. Once you download the model, you can do what you want with it. And that includes generating not safe for work images, um, including... uh, porn which uh has apparently quickly become the case um there's examples on 4chan and on reddit where um there's been multiple subreddits already dedicated to stable diffusion nsfw or um porn diffusion all of these kinds of things um and you know we've talked in the past about how this is a general concern with deepfakes that this has been done this was the real kind of pornographic aspect where people have been using it to generate um, synthetic uh, not safe for work images uh, that includes real people like celebrities and, and sometimes even uh, partners so yeah now that whole thing is coming back into vogue with these incredibly powerful models that uh, for now, like Dali 2 and MidJourney did not allow for this, and it wasn't really possible to use deepfix in this way, but now we can. And, uh, yeah, it, it seems like maybe um could lead to some problems. What do you think, Sharon?
0: Oh, definitely some problems. Like, um, I guess it's not that surprising that these... Initial things have come up, especially since open AI was being pretty uh, stringent on on what they allowed or didn't allow, uh, you know, to be proved to be generated. And so now it's all basically loose and out there. And so um, we'll see. It really depends on what people want to see. <laughs> how they want to create. So I think a lot of it is um, because, you know you know,
1: what started the internet. So I mean, this is not unexpected, but it's still kind of tricky. And this article does go into how maybe pretty much the main thing to expect now is that platforms that host images like Reddit, or for instance, Patreon. Um, may need to just deal with this problem of deep deepfake, uh, not-safe-for-work imagery. And uh, Reddit, for instance, has uh, banned these um, new subreddits that were dedicated to it. Uh, and their you know, terms of service actually do forbid it. So going forward, that might be kind of what will have to become the new norm.
0: Right. Right. And um, I mean, people, given that the weights are completely open and people can just generate things almost, you know, on infinitums, they, yeah. So a lot of, a lot can be done um, if there are no restrictions on it. So it's interesting to see where basically this goes. It is very tricky. Um, And I think a lot of the user interfaces out there right now are not supporting the, uh, not safe for work, kind of uh, application, but you know the weights are out there. so if you do run it on your own machines, it's it's totally doable.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's worth noting that the actual GUI website tool by this company, stability AI that developed stable diffusion does have these filters. Um, so yeah, it's uh, you know not easy to do this necessarily, but definitely doable. And I think in general, it's interesting to witness how much of a huge event the release of uh, stable diffusion has been. So, all these articles are basically in response to it. There was a blog post on multimodal.art titled One Week of Stable Diffusion that just covered how much has happened, where multiple websites uh, that allow text to image generation, like Night Cafe, Uh, or mid-journey have already um, incorporated it. There's already plugins for Figma and Photoshop to use it. Um, There's uh, new package features to do videos, for instance. So it's just really blowing up and uh, leading to so much new work and follow-up work on top of this open source model that really just showcases how much of a benefit, uh, even if there are these sorts of ethical concerns, uh, how beneficial it is to uh, allow other people to build on this work, uh, I think.
0: And on to our art and fun stuff section, uh, in very much related to stable diffusion. Uh, so first article is, here's how the best AI art generators compare. Um, so this is... An uh, article by Fabian Steltzer, uh, who described himself on Twitter as a quote prompt intern, um, working on three AI based projects, um, and, uh, compared using an experiment different, different text to image, text to image AI are generators, including Stable Diffusion, Dolly 2, and Midjourney. And what he did was he just entered the same prompts into each tool um, and used a one-to-one aspect ratio for the uh, images. So the prompts range from, and I'll just read them out, uh, low poly game asset, Cthulhu monster 2000 video game isometric view. Uh, that's one. And uh, another one is 1990s clip art of a laughing crazy fax machine, Windows 3.1 MS-DOS early computer clip art. And so... <laughs> giving really crazy results um, and very, very descriptive prompts, which is really interesting. I guess it really establishes Fabian Seltzer as a prompt intern. (laughs) And he shares this mega thread on Twitter comparing how these different tools uh, produce these results. And his summary was that stable diffusion seems to produce the cleanest results. Midjourney does really good at creating painterly paint painterly textures, uh, which Midjourney did say of themselves before. Um, and, uh, what's, you know, there's some funny little things. Like if you just put the word art into a prompt, Midjourney goes a little crazy. Um, it starts being, you know, very artsy. Um, and, and yeah, so just a uh, very interesting stuff. Dolly 2 produces the most photorealistic results. You can imagine based on, you know, what's coming out here, uh, what, what data each of these models are using, um, and how they're thinking about uh, what their tool is for, and it's just so interesting to see how uh, each of these models is actually quite differentiated in a way.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, he says these image uh, synths are like instrument. It's amazing. We'll go so many of them, each with a unique sound, and what's really fun is you know you don't have to take his conclusions you can actually just look. He posted these really um, you know, well-formatted images uh, where you just have the three things side-by-side, side, the same prompt and, and the outputs. And you, you do get to see how each one has its own sort of character. Dolly2 definitely is better at more photorealistic things. Uh, Mid-Journey is very much optimized to be more artsy and sort of evocative and so on. There's these, um, you know, various, um, distinctions. And I, I do think he is right. And this is a good metaphor that each one is a musical instrument that can be used to kind of hit the same, uh, notes, so to speak, but have a different character. Um, and yeah, it, it means that basically it's not just about, you, know, you can do text to image you can really learn each individual synthesis tool and its quirks and how to get result you want out of it, uh, which is really cool. and uh, of course you know we can't really describe all of this uh, using words, all these images so again check out the link to this in the description of this episode or on last week in where we will have the link as well. Which one of these comparisons did you think was uh, the most fun here, Sharon?
0: Oh, the most fun. Well, I, I really personally liked the one that was a human anatomical heart made of flowers, pastel, matte masterpiece. And I just, I just felt like they looked very different. So Stable Diffusion, honestly, just looked like An arrangement of flowers in the shape of a heart sort of you know and then dolly two was actually the anatomical heart structure like that you see in science class with flowers on top of it and then mid-journey I think was like the most integrated of those two of it was you know there's something that looks anatomical about it. it looks almost disgusting in terms of the anatomical part but then around it was all these flowers um so it didn't look as gross but it's I don't know. It was just interesting because there, it felt like I could see semantically very different things, and I could see how it was getting at it and in different ways. Um, that being said, I think all of these are all you know cherry picked from each of the each of the models, and so you know each of the models can produce many different images, right? So it's um, it's also hard to say to to compare this way.
1: Yeah, I think you definitely need to like play around with it for quite a while to get the general feel things. Mid-journey does tend to be more dramatic. Let's say le 2 is maybe more realistic, but it definitely depends on the context. Um, personally, I find it kind of fun that there was a prompt on mathematical art, 1924, lithography, abstract generative art. So you're using a generative art AI tool to make generative art that is like old school uh, programming based. And again, you see very, very different outputs uh, from all three. And and it's just fun to see, you know, the variety. And I think there's probably more variety across these tools than within one tool if you had multiple uh, outputs. So, yeah, uh, really fun thing to, to take a look at and uh speaking of comparing all of these texts to image synthesis tools uh the next and last thing up here is something uh, we did <laughs> related to that so um i and sharon and a friend of us um, so i and sharon and a, a friend of ours who writes science fiction uh have started this little project called stories by ai where we just wanted to explore using GPT 3 and using voice synthesis tools and using these text to image things uh you know how we could use them to write short stories and illustrate short stories and uh we just released i think our sixth or seventh story this create filter button and what was really fun is now that stable diffusion came out and me journey was opening up um, actually for generating the images for it i just went ahead and played around with all three and uh you know mixed and matched and kind of saw what worked and i do i would say it, it definitely seems like for different uh outcomes i found that using a specific tool like DALI-2 or mid-journey or uh, stable diffusion kind of made the most sense. So I I kind of like this previous article does speak a little bit to my experience, just for this one uh, little project. And uh, Sharon, you've been generating a lot of these images before for Galbra Stories. Um, How would you say that experience has been so far?
0: It's been so interesting because I think what we both found was that, uh, you know, if you uh, just grab a quote from the story, you can actually get something very interesting. So you don't have to even design your own prompt necessarily. You can just get it from the story, which was already AI generated, right by GPT three. And so uh, it's it's just so fascinating that now we can very much streamline this pipeline and be able to create these stories uh, and. You know, there is a bit of obviously human left where we're doing a lot of this, but it's it's been so illuminating because I remember just a few years ago, quite frankly, like three, four, where I was, you know, I had this dream of a student project for my students uh, to create a children's book. And it was actually quite hard uh, to create it. And um, uh, especially, I mean, we were looking at, you know, continuity across the frames, which you know, here we're able to do, I mean, we didn't do it continuity here, but you know, this is kind of like, st- these are real stories and they're actually interesting. Um, so props, props to the AI. And I think this is just the, the start, you know, it's not perfect, but it, it is a start and they're actually engaging now, which is super exciting.
1: Yeah, definitely. You know, we've been doing this for a couple of months and already there have been these changes initially. We just used Delhi to, now we can use mid journey and stable diffusion has come out and who knows what will come in uh, you know a month or two, right. And who knows what happens with GPT three or, or these other things we've been seeing also progress on that front. So yeah, it's, it's been really fun to, to do this project and, and keep exploring this sort of space of human AI collaboration, um, and, um, you know, it's, it seems like maybe something that the listeners of this podcast would find interesting, especially given all these other stories this week about um, text to image, uh, Im- uh, text to image synthesis. So, um, yeah, maybe check it out if you want another example of what these tools can be used for. And again, we'll link to it in the description.
0: And with that, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Scan It Today's Last Week in AI podcast. You can find the articles we discussed here today and subscribe to our weekly newsletter with similar ones at lastweekin.ai. and do subscribe to our stories by AI as well.
1: Yeah, I think it's pretty good. So check it out. Um, As usual, uh, we would like to uh, beg for some uh, reviews. (laughs) uh as well Ooh, and some feedback uh, so shame. we actually got some new reviews that uh have been uh, pretty cool so we got a pretty positive one and we got uh, a slightly critical one three stars Wow! But, uh, yeah.
0: useful. And,
1: uh, yeah, very useful and yeah this Thank was you. about how i needed a uh, better microphone setup better audio which was uh, totally fair and I adjusted my setup so hopefully it's better this time. Uh, it's funny, I actually have a nice expensive microphone. I just didn't uh, bother, you know, looking into how to optimize the usage. So that really got me to do and now it. And now's
0: the chance.
1: Yeah, that got us to do it. So if you want, you know, if you have suggestions for improvement, we will definitely listen. Um, you can email us uh, to contact at lastweekin.ai. You can... We review an Apple, um, you know, whatever. So, yeah, we appreciate feedback and, and uh, whether it's negative or positive, it would be um, much appreciated.